Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 53 for June 22nd, 2011. Yeah, so we're just coming off of our listeners' choice uh, episodes and we're now starting a new series. And I haven't quite figured out what we're going to call this. We didn't really talk about it, Ken, but basically we're going to be doing all the books that came out in the 90s in the order in which they came out, which is kind of exciting for me because it's basically when I think Star Trek was ramping up to its peak of popularity. What would you call this era? I mean, do you or do you the even agree with The naughty 90s. <laughs> I, the, I don't know. But you do do you agree with me that this is when Star Trek was reaching its peak of popularity? Oh yeah. Multiple TV shows. The movies were going strong. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean it's the next generation which you know, I, I know tons of people who don't care a lick about Star Trek, but they will say, Oh yeah, I watched Star Trek the Next Generation, you know, religiously back when it was coming on and yet they don't care anything about any of the other franchises, so uh, I think Star Trek: The Next Generation just hit a, a chord at that time. Yeah, it, it was very good, very good show. It probably had the broadest reach of any of the shows. Definitely the broadest reach of any of the um, post Roddenberry shows. And of course, I probably shouldn't say that because Roddenberry was involved in the beginning of right. the series. But uh, yeah, any of the post original series series, you know, that obviously had had the biggest reach. I guess the movies were pretty successful, and so you had people who grew up on the show that were now adults, uh, of the original show were now adults, and then the movie brought in all the kids like me who watched it because it was you know, kind of like watching Star Wars. And then now you're going to have a weekly show kind of in the same vein. Uh, it, like I said, it just it hit a niche and uh, ran with it. Yeah. Plus in... In the syndication market, I mean, it seemed like Next Gen was getting a, a lot of primo slots to play in, primetime, on the non-Big 3 channels. So, right. Well, well, Star Trek The Next Generation was like one of the first shows that was successful as a syndicated, a first-run syndicated show. Yeah. I mean, because before then, the only thing syndicated shows or syndicated channels would show was, you reruns. know, reruns. Right. So it wasn't until The Next Gen came out that... that prove that it's a viable market for new shows as well oh I so that's uh, why i didn't know that yeah so after next generation came out that's why you saw a huge spike in and most of them seem to be science fiction so you know the superboy tv series started there was you know some i don't know i just remember there was like this robot cop uh robot motorcycle cop show and huh. just like uh, uh, cranking out all this uh I won't say they were all good, but <laughs> <laughs> War of the Worlds, Friday the 13th, the series, Freddy's yeah. Nightmares. I mean, all of those came out because Star Trek the Next Generation proved to be uh, a viable market for first-run shows. So 
I did not know Jet Next Gen was uh, was the first one successful uh, syndication show like that. Yeah, didn't know that. So, so anyway, so what we're going to do is um, in the early 1989, right before Star Trek V came out, DC Comics lost their license to Star Trek. So that's why they only had the one miniseries of Next Generation, and they ended their long-running monthly Star Trek comics. So they had to do some renegotiating with Paramount, and uh, starting here in October 1989, they rebooted Star Trek um, with uh, Volume 2, Number 1, and they also started Star Trek The Next Generation, Number 1, uh, along with like an, an adaptation of Star Trek V, which we're not going to cover. But uh, this was kind of the, the kickoff of their second wave of Star Trek comics that came out by DC Comics. And a pretty good wave, too, at least if these first three issues are an indication of the overall series. Right. And mainly I think it's because of the writing. I mean, they yep. got Peter David, who's a huge name in Star Trek Expanded Universe stuff, to basically uh, be the front person for the Star Trek series. And Michael Jan Friedman, who also uh, has done lots of expanded universe stuff to kind of oversee all of the next generation series so they definitely got the right two guys to guide this ship and and these stories are really good i think agreed should we start with the first one yeah let's do that so this is star trek volume two number one came out october 1989 let me get the comic so i can find out who wrote it and stuff well i know who wrote it but peter david james w fry oh sorry yeah. So writer was Peter David, uh, penciler was James W. Fry, inker Arnie Starr, letterer Bob uh, Panera, colorist Tom McCraw, and editor was Robert Greenberger. And of course, Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry. Yay! So this story takes place right after Star Trek V. Because like I said, as far as DC Comics goes, they had just released the adaptation to Star Trek V. The cover has headshots of the whole crew of the Enterprise A. So Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Sulu, Chekhov, Uhura, and Scotty. And they're all above Enterprise A. And there's a little caption at the bottom that says, The adventure begins anew. First page holds a single close-up of a Klingon ambassador's enraged face as he exclaims, There shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives. And then we flash to Kirk watching this recording from his quarters on Earth. He and McCoy are discussing how the Klingons are none too happy with Kirk after the events of Star Trek 3 and 5. And McCoy suggests that Kirk needs a little... Feminine comfort, if you know what I mean, wink, wink. Kirk agrees and suggests that McCoy comes with him. A very confused McCoy relents and follows him. While they're in a shuttle heading out of space dock, McCoy realizes that Kirk has been talking about the newly minted Enterprise A. I'm not 100% sure where McCoy thought he was going, (laughs) but uh, maybe I don't want to know. So anyways, Kirk describes how he still has nightmares about the Enterprise's destruction on the Genesis planet. However, he does not mention that he still remembers his own son's death at the same time. So, kind of odd that he has those priorities. On board the Enterprise, Spock is playing 3D chess with a new crewwoman named Mira. 
she is a demon-looking alien with a long tail that she uses to move the pieces. And she has spiraling horns atop her head. Much to Sulu and Chekhov's enjoyment, she places Spock into Chek. Spock then moves a piece and places her in Checkmate, stating that he has taught her all she knows about chess. But he has not taught her everything that he knows. The game breaks up, and Mira requests Sulu to help her make her way around the ship. And particularly, she wants him to help her get to her quarters in a very alluring way while she's caressing his face with her tail. Sulu explains that he will have to take a rain check since he is on duty. As she walks away, Chekhov gives Sulu a hard time about being quite the ladies' man. The two enter the bridge and are surprised to see Kirk in the command chair. Uhura soon gets a communication from Starfleet that they have their first mission. They depart the space station and head out to the unknown. Elsewhere in space, a small alien craft, which has aboard it a little alien uh, with yellow skin named Argus, uh, is sending out an SOS message. His message is answered, but the response tells him... The gods have condemned him too. He breaks off the link before they can finish passing the sentence, what he's condemned to. As the Enterprise streaks through space, Chekhov has his training class with the new security officers. He is working with a willowy-looking blue-skinned alien. They have a quick sparring match, and the alien knocks the senses out of Chekhov. He is seeing double when he is called back to the bridge. The Enterprise has detected a small craft which is being attacked by a larger one. They hail the smaller craft and Argus pleads for their assistance. Just as his ship is about to blow up, Transporter Chief Chatsinski is able to beam him aboard the Enterprise. No sooner has she notified Kirk that she's got him than the larger vessel demands that they hand over Argus and to not interfere with the Nazgul fleet's affairs. Kirk explains that they are responding to a plea for help, but the Nazgul state that they are not part of the Federation, and he has no business butting in. Kirk orders that Argus be brought to the bridge so that they can work this out. The Nazgul leader does not want to discuss it and f starts to fire upon the Enterprise. After taking a few hits, Kirk or orders Sulu to return fire. Damaged, the alien craft heads towards the Enterprise on a collision course. The alien craft impacts the Enterprise and is destroyed against the shields. Argus explains that he is being hunted by his own people because he disagrees with their leader, Sala, who is on some sort of holy crusade. Spock informs the captain that an even larger ship is incoming. When they are hailed, Sala himself appears on the view screen. Sala states that Kirk and company will pay for the destruction of the previous ship with their pathetic lives. He first turns his attention to Argus and is able to kill him just by looking at him and pronouncing him dead. He then turns his gaze upon Kirk and starts to pronounce his own sentence. We flash to the Federation Council building where Klingon ambassador states that the Klingon Empire has offered riches beyond compare to anyone who brings them the head of James D. Kirk. And then we get a final panel of Han Solo saying, I don't know, I can imagine quite a lot. That last part was a joke, obviously. There was no Han Solo in the story. No, there isn't. 
But he should be. that He had the perfect setup. He did. And definitely the idea that a huge price would be put on the head of James Kirk is a little similar to having a huge price put on Han Solo's head. Right. But I was thinking more of the riches beyond compare, which... Yeah. Which is from a different part of A New Hope. Yep, yep. So anyways, uh, just in regards to that, how can the Klingon Empire do that? Because even if the Klingons aren't part of the Federation, I mean, it would still be murder, right? And so anybody who killed Kirk in cold blood would would be brought up on murder trials, right? Uh, By who? By the Federation. Well, and what's their jurisdiction? Mm-hmm. Federation I mean, space. It, oh, they can go after. Yeah, but well, they could definitely well, it, they could definitely go after the person that killed him. Right. Sure. I mean, since odds are he's probably going to be uh, a Federation citizen, or at least somebody w- normally within Federation space. Right. But you know, if they want, if they got a problem with the Klingons, well, what are they going to do about it? <laughs> I mean, it's like the Klingons don't care. Right. Right. You know? Right. They're not a part of the Federation. Uh, matter of fact, nine times out of ten, they're they're waging war with each other, or at least playing cat and mouse, Cold War kind of stuff. Yeah. Now that line, the line that was at the very beginning, that was actually in Star Trek three or four, right? Where he says what that uh, there'll be no peace as long as Kirk's alive. Yes, I do believe that. And John, I'm pretty sure it was John Shuck who was emoting those words with. Great oration. Oh, is that right? Yes, that's the actor who used to be Sergeant Enright in the old Macmillan and Wife TV show, which you're way too young for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that show is. Yeah, I've heard of, of Macmillan and Wife, though. Yeah, one of the last uh, Rock Hudson things that Rock Hudson did. So, yep, Sergeant Enright was the, the wimpy kind of uh, detective who was like his, you know, the, the commissioner's uh, assistant kind of guy. Uh, so though he was kind of a wimpy guy there, he played a really good pissed off uh, Klingon. Yeah, in, he did. Yeah, in Star Trek movie. Yep. So what'd you think of this one? Oh, it's great. I liked it. It's you know it's a lot of setup, sure, but it was good. You know, there's a little bit of humor there, but I think it was a pretty good story. You know, it kept along at a pretty good clip. It introduced some new characters, just to keep things interesting. And it uh, it gave us uh, two cliffhangers with which to entice us to the uh, ne- next issue. Well, there's really three cliffhangers, right? Because they were en route somewhere when they got stopped by uh, Argus's ship. And then, then well, there's the whole... Yeah, but you don't know anything about that at all. Well, you don't know the where issue. they're going, but, but you know that they are on a mission to go somewhere. Yeah. And since I know nothing about the mission, I wouldn't call that a cliffhanger. But... It is, that mission is going to be a big cliffhanger in the next issue. Right. And of course, by the time we get to the third issue, not to talk about the future too much, we're going to have even more cliffhangers. Or let's say, yeah, I say cliffhangers. Threads of storyline. Let's call it threads of storyline, which uh, need to be resolved. Right. So uh, Peter Davis is pretty good at building this framework, this architecture of the different storylines going along, uh, which is pretty cool. Right. And, now, and many of them are basically getting people in pe- powerful people pissed off at Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are angry with him. 
Yes, they're not happy at all. Yeah, you mentioned that you know Peter David's bringing in all these new characters. Um, I read once one time that you know he was the writer on the um, the first series, the the first fifty, you know, yeah, the first one that DC did there towards right. the end. And my understanding from what I've read was that Paramount was not happy with him because he did introduce too many secondary characters. And they wanted the fo- the bo- the book to focus on you know the the crew that was on the show, right. where he kept bringing in these other people to kind of fill out the the ship a little bit, and you know that's kind of why they you know basically stopped that series altogether and then restarted it and and a lot of the guys that were in those final issues aren't on this you know they they didn't make it to the new series, huh? So that's the, that's the reason they stopped. Uh... The DC, well, well the that and, DC and the, that and I think licensing. they're, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead and say that again. I was talking over you. Yeah, that's why they stopped the licensing. Well, I think they were just renegotiating, but that was one of the the points that they were hanging up on as far as uh, that they weren't happy with with the way the book was going. Now, this is all hearsay and and just something that I read, so I don't know for sure. But so I guess they weren't happy about the new issues that started up in volume two then. Well, that's why I was surprised upon rereading these because, you know, I read these back when they were coming out, and, and I have never looked at them again. Right. So in rereading them and, and knowing what I knew about the the first series, uh, you know, that I didn't know when I was reading these as a kid, I, I was surprised that there was so many new characters on the show on, on the ship. Right. But really, there's only, what, three? There's the demon woman. There's the Security transporter guy. chief. And then there's that willowy blue guy. Right. And right. I have my theories on, on that willowy blue guy. What's his name? Futon? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, have, I have more of a theory about where he's going to go in, in the second issue, which I want to bring up. I could be totally wrong, but I just want to throw it out there. All right. Got, I've got a theory. Since I've, I've read none of these comics before. Right. So I don't know Not... where it's going exactly, but I have a theory. Yeah. So what do you think about the art overall? I thought the art was very good. Compared to how they were looking in Star Trek V, even Star Trek IV, they were looking a bit leaner than, than, than reality. But other than that, I think the faces are very accurate. I think they are as well, with the exception of Chekhov. A lot of times, Chekhov just looks really weird. Well, Chekhov looks really muscular. Which is probably good for a uh, security chief, but... Well, I'm talking about his face, like, I mean... His face? Especially that when he gets kicked in the head by Futon, he looks really weird. And I don't know if they're just trying to say, you know, he looks weird because he just got his clock cleaned or... (laughs) But but, uh, there's some other times where he just, he does not look like Walter Koning at all. Oh. Well, I think... The first time you see Chekhov hamming it up for a comic effect, holding his head in his hands, you know, obviously distressed over having his uh, his his bell chimed. Uh, I think that looks a lot like like Walter Koning. Yeah, but, but look at the picture but not right the next below one. it. Yeah, yeah not, where, where he's next to the Silver Surfer. And by the way, who is that guy? There's an all white bald guy that looks kind of like the Silver Surfer, who's on the security team, I assume. Yeah, he's on the security team, and we see him later in in security helmet and everything. Huh? Cool. Yeah, I don't know who he is. He, he looks, looks like, like a force a to be reckoned with. 
Uh, he looks like a rock guy, did you say? Yeah, kind of like a cross between the Silver Surfer and Thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm wondering if he's supposed to be that... Uh, remember there's that rock guy in Star Trek New Frontier, which was also written by Peter David? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if he's going to end up being that guy, and I can't remember what his name is. But no. we'll see. Right now he's just a background character. He wasn't... Yeah. I forgot the guy's name, but he's a pretty funny character. I like him in the other series. The but there, right? Yeah, I don't remember him being white. But he's also huge. I mean, the other guy's huge. This guy looks muscular and stuff, you know, pretty solid, but uh, not as huge as the uh, New Voyages character. Maybe. Mm. You, you might be right. I might be just reading into it. So, yeah, so in general, the ships look good, except for some exceptions. The The drawings are accurate. So, I like the artwork. Yeah, me too. Even the willowy blue guy the with willowy, the mohawk. willowy blue guy. Another thing just to mention is, at the very beginning of this comic, you see the face of a very angry Klingon, who is pronouncing his, his hatred for Kirk and everything. But the guy's red. I mean, he's red. And it's like, I'm not used to Klingons being red. So I will say from an inking standpoint, even though it makes him look more threatening and more of an issue, you know, potential issue for Kirk, uh, making him red like that, I'm just not used to uh, Klingons being red. Yeah. Uh, could, it just be his, could it just be Kirk's TV? <laughs> <laughs> He's got the color setting off on it. Right, exactly. Yeah, and he's got, like, like spittle, like, dangling between the upper and lower teeth and everything. And yeah, really nasty eyes. Yeah, He's mad. He's very, he, he's mad. He's mad. Yes, he's mad. He's so mad he's red. Anyway. <laughs> I think the, the, the colorist went for the, uh, you know, a little artistic license there. Right. So, uh, the uniforms, I thought, looked good. I liked mm-hmm. how they, uh, like you said... Everybody looks a little more muscular than what they probably were in in real life at this point. Um, <laughs> muscular in some cases and just lean. Which, right. You know, people weren't looking that lean <laughs> at this point in the <laughs> in the in in the movies. Right. Now, the person that I thought looked really good in this uniform uh, is only in in a few panels, and that's the chief engineer or yeah, transporter, transporter chief uh, Tajinsky. Yeah. She looks really good. Right. But she's wearing the skirt, which, which, and I might be wrong, but I think the only woman who wore a skirt with this uniform is Ahura. Uh, I, I, had this, I had the same comment. Oh, did you? And she looks really good because it's, like, uh, it's like, like a mini skirt, kind of. I mean, not, a hor- not, not incredibly high, but it's pretty, pretty short. She's got a nice uh, young little shape to her. Yeah, and, and she looks, it looks good. I like the belt buckle. I mean, yeah. it... it it definitely looks different uh, than the the other guys, and it actually looks like it tucks into the skirt instead of kind of hanging over like everybody uh-huh. else's, like the tunic, right, right, right. And she's got her hip kind of cocked <laughs> in a kind of a sassy way when she's saying, "Modern technology saved your butt." Well, and later when they're being attacked, and she's like hanging on to the side of the console. She's quoting, join Starfleet and see the universe. Oh, uh-huh. boy. <laughs> Just, uh, I, think, I think that kind of, I think 
just that little attention to detail and putting a little humor in it, uh, right. I think, really sells the story. Yeah, and there's plenty of humor. Even more humor as the uh, issues go on, Right. Uh, I think. Another point about that is where Tachinsky is having to explain to Argus how he got out of the ship. Because it doesn't seem like... I mean, Argus seems very surprised that he's been beamed out of a ship and is on the Enterprise. So right. I took that as meaning, well, this is not as technologically an advanced uh, a people. Because it, it kind of seems like, like he doesn't even know what a transporter is. But well, Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if that was the case or he was just surprised. Because um, he saw his entire ship going up around him. Right, and then... but. You might have a point because the when the ship starts attacking the Enterprise, it, it's no match at all, and yeah. in fact, just crumbles to pieces when it hits the Enterprise's shields. Yeah. Even when it, right, even it, when it attempts to do the uh, the kamikaze run. Right. So you might be right. Maybe uh, they just weren't as advanced. And later on, as we so that's a that's a note I made when I was first reading this first time. As we go into the later issues, you do find out that they're not as technologically advanced by by a long shot. Well. I don't want to spoil too much, but I think you might confuse them with another race. But we can talk about that in a minute. No, no. Oh, you think I think they're the 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 third issue guys? No, I don't. Okay, we'll talk. I, about I know. It. I know what you're thinking. Okay. <laughs> now those two, they too, they 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 don't seem to know much about ta- transport attack. They do not. Since. Anyway, we we won't go into that. Uh, let's see what else. Oh yeah, okay. So basically, the the Nazgul are just crazy people. <laughs> They're just nuts who who really follow this Sala guy. So it's kind of like a religious thing. Sala's able to just by pronouncing them dead that people die. Remote control death. That's uh, that's pretty something. Right. Yeah. We'll we'll get into that more here in the next issue. But yeah, that's. Uh... And they keep saying that he's on some sort of holy crusade that's tearing his people apart, but it never, or at least it doesn't in this issue, explain what that holy crusade is. So I'll be curious to learn more about that. Uh, yeah, well, I don't remember. I don't remember finding out all that much more about it. But but maybe we do. Well, we don't. I think, I, I think we, the main point is that they're nuts. <laughs> And so because of them being nutcase, uh, fervent believers or whatever, it makes them more of a threat. Right. Well, you notice that Argus turned that transmission off at the beginning. Yes. I didn't get that he was talking to Sala directly at that point, and it seemed like... I didn't think he was. I thought he was either. talking to the commander of, the, of that smaller ship that was but, first attacking him. Right, but it almost seems like you know he turned it off real quick before that commander could, was going to pronounce him dead too. I agree. So, so did that commander also have the ability to do it? Hmm. I don't know. They will have to keep reading. We will. Uh, I thought things went kind of quickly at the beginning. You know, when they got everybody together and they went out on that first mission, I thought things went kind of fast. But that's fine. You know, get into the story. Lots of stuff going on. Let's be expeditious about getting things kicked off. Well, they don't take off until what? I mean, they're already, I mean, six six or seven pages into it before. No, they they don't take off until eleven pages into it. I mean, that's half the book. But what do they spend a lot of time? It's just Kirk and McCoy talking, well, which really has nothing to do with getting everybody together and on the ship. Well, I think they're already on the ship. They're just waiting on Kirk to show back up. 
Yeah, it, it never explains what, what they're doing. I mean, Kirk's just yeah. milling about his apartment with McCoy, and then they show up and leave. Right. And then they introduce a few new characters on the ship. Yep. They're still working out kinks, though. They're constantly working out kinks. Yeah, I wish they would have dropped that. I wasn't that thrilled with that in Star Trek V, so... Yeah. Well, you get, a, you get a lot of it in these three issues. Yeah, you do. Especially and, the... and to some degree for comedic effect. So. Right, it's all comedic effect. Yeah. So where did McCoy think that they were going <laughs> at the beginning? When he oh, says that he needs I... some feminine companionship, come along, Bones, and he's like, well, okay. Going to a strip club, of course. Oh, okay. I don't. I have no idea, <laughs> and I really don't know how long McCoy was really taken in by that. But yeah, I'm pretty sure he he knew right away once they got dressed and uh, in their Starfleet uniforms and jumped on the shuttle pod. Right. <laughs> he probably if had they, a good idea if, where they were. If they were really going to uh, a questionable place, <laughs> or even a meat market, you never. You know, yeah, you're not going to be. You can have casual clothes on. Right. I just thought it was funny. I mean, obviously, like I said, there's a lot of humor in this book, and, and right. I thought that was one of them. Yeah, that was good. All right, so there's a line that Sala says that I wanted to run by you because I I was kind of surprised to read it because I always thought this was perhaps a uh, more vulgar term than probably is. But Sala says when he's about to kill Argus, he says, so this is the pissant who challenged the power of Sala. Mm -hmm. And I read that, I'm like, (gasps) because... (laughs) <laughs> I thought it, I I I liked it. I but the thing the thing that hit me right away is that's a that's a pretty specific colloquialism. I mean, are they still is an alien from a from a is an alien from a from a, a moderately isolated society going to use a twentieth twenty first century colloquialism? I don't know. Well, I'm sure it's just a part of the translation. <laughs> Universal translator. Universal. Oh, oh, that must be it. But, yes. but it, it. I've always kind of heard that, and I've always kind of wondered where did that term come from. So I did look it up. And oh, it's, good. It's an actual ant. They call it the piss ant because of the urine-like odor produced by its nesting material and the acid that it uh, that constitutes their venom. So wow, it's an I'm actual. Glad, I'm ant. glad you looked that up. <laughs> See, I did. I I just thought that it meant somebody that uh, you kind of step on, and do other things to. I didn't know it was an actual type of ant. Yeah. So. And it, you... it, it it's kind of interesting. I I have no idea about any of this research of yours, by the way, and I don't necessarily stand behind it, the accuracy. <laughs> but I will say that at least they didn't call it the urine ant. I mean, I even though that's more probably less uh, colloquialisms. I think piss ant sounds a lot better. But it sounds dirty, man. Wow. I told you that these books are the ones that taught me how to curse, right, when I was a little kid? You mentioned something about that, yes. Yeah, reading it, and then I'm like, what is this damn word? It must be a bad word. <laughs> and then later, oh, it's damn. I'm cool because I can read bad words. So you weren't listening too closely or maybe not watching enough of City on the Edge of Forever at the end. I probably couldn't stay up till the end. <laughs> when, when I was a kid, Star word, Trek came on at midnight on Friday or midnight on Saturdays. So midnight. Oh my god! I could usually see the beginning, but by the second midnight. commercial break, I was asleep. Midnight? That's yeah. a late slot, man. 
Dude, it came on every, and I could only watch it like during the summer. And I remember, right. you know, staying up late on Saturday so I could watch Star Trek and then making it to like the second commercial break and then being dead asleep. Didn't have VCRs back then? Not in my household. <laughs> I was born a poor black child. We didn't have such things. That was a uh, jerk reference, and not it was. It was. It was definitely. A, come on, you you said yourself how much I'm a Steve Martin fan. Oh, that's anyway. true. You love your Steve Martin. I do. Who's from Texas, by the way, just down the street, Waco. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Huh. He's he a got rid boy. of. He got rid of his accent. Not that yours is very strong. Hmm. 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 Anything else on this one, sir? Nope. I was done a while ago. All right. Let's go. Okay. So issue number two, titled The Sentence, published date November 1989, same team, creative team as the first one. So I'm not going to go over it again. Synopsis. The cover shows a very angry Klingon filling up half of the Enterprise bridge view screen and a Klingon bird of prey in the other half. Kirk, Spock, and Sulu look on. The story opens in Federation Council Chambers with the bleacher seats full with angry Federation representatives, mostly non-human. There are shouts of barbarism towards a Klingon ambassador at the center of the room. At one end of the room is the Federation president who is trying to keep the proceeding civil. Since the Federation previously rejected the Klingon ambassador's call for Kirk to be turned over for Klingon trial, he now offers riches beyond compare to whomever can wring the Emperor Kirk's head. Elsewhere, the Enterprise is face-to-face with the Nazgul warship. A two-page spread shows the two ships filling the pages with the story's title in red capital letters, The Sentence. Kirk is crouching over the deceased Argus, whose rebellious ways led to his amazing death from a long-distance kill inflicted by the fanatical Sala. Sala threatens to do the same to Kirk after he pronounces his sentence against Kirk, who attempted to protect Argus. Kirk tells the megalomaniacal dictator to do his worst. The rest of the crew is not so sure that this is a good idea, but Kirk stands his ground, and to Sala's honest surprise, Kirk does not die. Sala goes on and on about how Kirk should be dead, but Kirk tells Sala he is so used to threatening and killing his people that he does not know how to deal with people not under his tyrannical grip. After having his say, Kirk tells Sulu to resume course to their original destination, Warp 3. In his explosion of frustration, Sala attempts to fire upon the Enterprise, too late, and totally misses. Spock comments how Kirk has made yet another enemy of a powerful head of state. Kirk calls it a knack. In sickbay, McCoy's autopsy shows Argus just stopped living. He can find no cause of death. As they approach Starbase 42, Ensign Futon, the new lanky alien security man we met in the first issue, catches up with Kirk, who is moving to the bridge. Futon apologizes for not being able to protect Argus, who was in his charge. Kirk tells him he was not responsible for that and calls him a conscientious officer. Futon is so happy he has gained Kirk's approval, he is saluting and beaming with intergalactic joy. 
At Starbase 42, Kirk and Spock meet with Ambassador Palmer and the reptilian Commodore of the base. The Ambassador is a pissant, to use that phrase again, who is angry with Kirk and the Enterprise for being an hour late to the base. Kirk is not happy with the Ambassador's BS. Kirk continues to win friends and influence people. The Ambassador is calmed down and begins to brief Kirk and Spock on the mission. The Ambassador tries to show a spotlight on Kirk's inferior knowledge of the two dominant races of Coronian III, but Spock upstages the Ambassador, showing his incredible thorough knowledge of both the Zemimida and Buis races. A two-week-old video transmission from the Zemimda leader named Takula asking for Federation mediation assistance is shown. He says he is tired of war with the Bruis and wants to put an end to all of it with the help of the Federation. The Enterprise was included on this diplomatic mission to demonstrate the Federation's commitment to the peace process. The Commodore breaks into the conversation, saying that the President of the Federation is attempting to send them a message. The Ambassador assumes smugly that it is for him, but is deflated when they are told the message is actually for Kirk. In private, Kirk and Spock receive the presidential message, telling them Kirk has a Klingon price on his head. Spock immediately asks how much, which Kirk reacts to negatively, then realizes comedically that he really does need to know how much. The president tells him the Klingons did not specify, but they did say riches beyond compare. Later, Kirk and Spock make their way back to the Enterprise, wondering suspiciously who might be watching them in the crowded halls of the Starbase. Meanwhile, on a Klingon warship, Captain Klaa is being attacked by one of his officers named Kron. Kron is defeated and put into a photon torpedo casing. Klaa orders his mate and officer named Vixus to fire a torpedo at a random target. She does so and Kron is disposed of. Kla is informed that the Klingon Empire has put a price on Kirk's head for anyone to claim, if successful. Kla is incensed at opening his, this quest up to non-Klingons. He pledges his crew to find Kirk and prove that outsiders are not required. They warp out. Sulu meets a new lieutenant on the bridge named Kathy Lee. <laughs> Kathy Lee, I just realized what that sounds like. Anyway, Kathy Lee. Sulu seems quite taken, as does Kathy. Kirk and Spock are entertained in the obvious mutual admiration club formed at the bridge's helm and navigation stations. The Enterprise enters orbit around Cronian III. Kirk, Spock, Chekhov, and Ambassador Palmer beam down to meet with the planetary leaders. At first, they are alone, but are eventually approached by Takula, who welcomes them to Zaminda. Takula tells them... They arrived not a moment too soon since their people are on the brink of extinction. They move quickly from the beam-down point to a large building, to a room deep in the building where they come upon Kaimi, the leader of the Buis, seated with his feet up on a desk in front of him. Kaimi complains of their lateness and asks them if they are there to broker Zaminda's surrender. He laughs haughtily. Kirk and Spock do not like the sound of this at all. Ambassador Palmer asks what is so funny. Kaimi replies sarcastically, 
like a man with all the aces, that he has asked for no mediation that would only delay the inevitable Zeminden defeat. Further, he pulls out a very large gun and tells them all to get the hell off of his planet before he blows them off. End of the story. Another cliffhanger. So there's the story. What do you think? I liked it. Me too. I thought it was quite good. Good. Yeah, I thought there was a good humor in the issue. I particularly like the time they, they took to draw out the how much joke when Kirk finds out that the Klingons <laughs> have put a price on his head. Uh, yeah. I thought that was very nice. I mean, there were multiple drawings, multiple panels that were getting across the comedic body language that an actor would do, and I, and I thought it worked. I like that. Yeah, it was good. And, you know, I, I like that. And I also liked how, you know, we are reintroduced to Claw and Vixus and, and the Klingons. And, <laughs> and Claw's kind of a badass in this. He is. <laughs> he just He's beats, not screwing around. Beats the dude, throws him in a torpedo tube, and launches him away. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 ha- yeah. and doesn't even tell her that he's in there. Just, you know, shoot it, whatever. You know, <laughs> live it up. So, yeah, I, I, overall, I thought this was really good. The only thing that kind of takes me out of it is that there is so many odd-looking aliens that we've never yeah. seen before. Yeah, that's true. I know that in the movies they had a lot of that, um, you know, just some background characters that look really strange that we've never seen before. But I don't know. It seems like in here there's like every other person is a very strange looking alien. Yeah, especially in the Federation Council chambers. Right, which in Star Trek Four, that's the way it was. I mean, there was a lot of weird looking aliens in there um, when Kirk was given his sentence and everything. Right. Uh, just... but, but when you look at that, though, I mean, considering the, the number of planets they've been to where, hey, they look pretty much like us, except for like ridges or something. Right. Um, I I was looking and I didn't see too many uh, human-like critters, or at least ones that were colored, human color. So, I mean, a lot of them were very, very out there, over the top, kind of uh, very different shapes, which, yeah. Right. And you would think that we would have at least see one a race that we're familiar with, like a, right. a Vulcan or right, right, or a uh, you know Andorian. Maybe throw a Gorn in there. <laughs> but you, yeah, you know, I, it's, I still can't see a Gorn as a member of the Federation. But yes, no, yes. they're not. They're not. Well, they're not. I thought. Th- I thought they. I thought we had become buddies with them. Nope. No, we are not buddies with them. Oh, okay. The uh, that that first panel where it shows shows all the guys the one that's saying such barbarism how do you say that barbarism barbarism such barbarism <laughs> that's Jor El from from Superman oh oh really and, yeah that's he the looks pretty uh, much like, him. like the nineteen fifties version of Jor El right with the sun on his chest and the, the <laughs> headband okay yep. Yep. So nice little nod to uh, another uh, intergalactic uh, race. Exactly. Hmm. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. That I, I like when they throw things like that in there. I'll have to go back and look at that again. I also kind of like the uh, the humor that was in there when uh, Sulu was it was deflated a bit at the hands of uh, Lieutenant Kathy Lee. I thought that was kind of funny. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, and, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Oh, and and just the thing, it's something that was just occurring to me when we are first introduced to the idea of Sulu as being a ladies' man, which never happened before. You know, the first thing I was thinking of in the first issue, where he's kind of like the lady man kind of thing. Well, if he's such a Casanova, I mean, what, I mean, because uh, Demora, his daughter, mm-hmm. uh, is is in generations. It's like, you know, just to get the timing right, you know, when when exactly did Sulu get hooked up? And I was wondering that in the first issue, and I forgot to mention that. And then I read read the second issue where it's like, oh. Hmm, Lieutenant Kathy Lee, who could that be? Perhaps the future mother of Demora? I don't know. Yeah, I was wondering that too, but the the time frame would not would that Wouldn't match because be right. cuz I don't think 20 something years passes in between here and Star Trek Generations. Do you? Well, it's more than that, isn't it? Or is it not enough? You think that more time has passed in between here and Star Trek Generations? Uh perhaps. I really don't. I really don't know. What what, what is the time period between the two? I mean, McCoy's still around. He's ancient. Well, no. I mean, but we're talking about Star Trek Generations, which was when the Enterprise B was launched. Oh, good point. So we're not talking about the beginning of Generations. Uh, that be the beginning of uh, next gen. We're talking about well after that series run. Yep. Yeah. So hold on one second. So let me pull up my Star Memory Trek Alpha? timeline. Star Trek timeline. All right. So Star Trek Five supposedly happened in let's see, twenty two eighty seven, and the Generations prologue happened in twenty two ninety three. So we're talking about five years, five or six years. So Demora oh, right. should, okay, should right. have already been born before this time. Right, okay, fine. No, completely right, because uh, I had forgotten that in the generations, of course, it's the it's what we took in place still in Kirk's time. Right. Okay, so, um, so does that mean – well, there's a continuity problem here. Because I, I think it's very possible that Kathy Lee was the mother. It's just, if that isn't the case, and, and if he hasn't already had her, then he's a two-timer. Well, that or they're divorced. I mean, we don't know what happened to the mother. Well, she's never mentioned. Well, you're making a lot of, a lot of okay. I mean, I, I'm being serious. We never hear right. about the mother, so we don't know if he's no. married or not. And in Star Trek, again, Generations... Kirk is surprised to even know that Sulu has a family. Right. Although Chekhov seems to know, but... Because you make time for what's important. Exactly. Which was (laughs) supposed to be McCoy's line, if DeForest Kelly and Spock would have actually considered uh, doing Generations, which they didn't. Oh, is that what happened? Yes. You didn't know that? I always wondered. I just assumed that, but I didn't know Oh my god, there's something... I'm aware of that you are not. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently this was... Originally, that was supposed to be not Scotty and, and Chekhov, but it was originally supposed to be uh, Nimoy and uh, DeForest Kelly. Well, and, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I guess when they when they read the script, it was like, well, anybody could do that. I mean, you know, our parts here is is not very big, and, and the dialogue we're doing here is pretty bad. It's like, anybody could do this. It's like, no, we don't want to do it. So they didn't. 
So they said the script was like anybody could do it, so they just got Jimmy Doohan and Walter Koning to do it. Right, well, and I always thought that... I assume that they probably were invited to come back, but I always liked it that they weren't there because yeah. Star Trek V, uh, Kirk makes such a big deal that he knew he wasn't going to die because Kirk and Spock were with him. Ah, uh, hmm. that's then, another interesting you know, he, point. He does die in the Nexus, uh, so to speak, on the Enterprise B, and uh, Kirk and Spock were... But he doesn't Spock die. Spock and McCoy wasn't with him. Yeah, right. but he, he was swept up into the Nexus. He didn't actually die until a lot later in Picard's time on that planet. Right. Yeah, so you're saying that if McCoy or Spock would have been in it, they would have made a note of that, you think? Made a note of it? Commented on that. Or do you think they just would have ignored it? I don't know whether they would have or not. Uh, they, they might have, I think Spock and McCoy might have made a comment saying, well, so much for him being not dying because he was with them. Because as far as they're concerned, he's probably dead. When in actuality, he's not. He was swept up in the Nexus. Right, but they won't know that until way Exactly. Later. Right. And McCoy's... No, is McCoy... Well, whatever. Uh, but, but if you look at what they do, Scotty is spouting out physical whatevers, you know, different things to try to break the hold of the, of the, the, the Nexus on the ship. Uh, the rescue ship, and that's very Spockian type talk. Uh, you know, it's 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 not that much. I mean, uh, Scotty's pretty smart too, but a lot of his dialogue is very Spockian uh, when they're trying to figure out what they can do to uh, release the ship. Right. And and what does Chekhov do? I mean, he helps out in sick bay. That's with true. All the, yeah, um, and he tells them, "You've become nurses." Right. Good point. Good point. Huh. So, oh well, we digress from this story. We did. So you think this is the last time we'll see Sala and uh, these Nazgul aliens? Oh, no, no. They're going to come – well, at least I'm assuming they're going to come in later. I mean, yeah. why – you know. I mean, they did all this stuff to set this up and then we're never going to see him again. You know, they just – you know, the Enterprise just heads out at Warp 3 and we never see him again. No. I think David is just stacking the deck against Kirk. He's got right. all these different entities that are going to be gunning for him. So – we have the Klingons, we have Sala, who's really pissed at him, and the, th- well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, there's going to be a third guy, but, well, anyway, I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> anyway, he's got all these things, uh, you know, he, they're just stacking the deck against Kirk, uh, making, making a lot of dissonance that'll eventually be resolved, I assume, in the coming issues. Right. Yeah, I, I like it. I think it's good. Yeah. All right. Um, um, anything else? Peter David is the one. Is it Peter David that wrote some of the stuff about Demora's more information about Demora and about Sulu? Yeah, he wrote uh, a couple of novels. One of them is Captain's Daughter. Which, there you go. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting how how he's starting to put a little bit of maybe how some of the relationship might have started, even though there's a continuity problem here. At least that's the way. I, I'm still reading it that way, even though there's a temporal uh, con- discontinuity here. Right. And, you know, obviously, Demore did not exist at this point, as far as, as anybody knew. Exactly. You know. So it's another kind of like um, when Worf's uh, son, Alexander, magically goes from being a baby to being a, a much bigger kid. Right. And, and there's uh, a... Uh, 
mentioning Peter David. He wrote a, a novel or a series of novels called Imzadi. There was Imzadi 1 okay, and Imzadi right. 2. Yep. And in Imzadi 2, he makes this great reference to, to Alexander shooting up real quick. And he's like, <laughs> well, uh, you know, Alexander has just recently gone through the Klingon growth spurt or something like that. <laughs> I mean, completely ridiculous, but you're like, hey, well. He explained it. <laughs> <laughs> How good he explained it, who knows, but uh, yeah. But, but he does something. it with that little twinge of humor, kind of like a right. wink to the audience, like, yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. good. Uh, no, I guess you're right. Anyway, there, there's something funky going on there, but I, I, th- I think they're trying to give the... Uh, you know, the, the origin of Demora there. But, okay, so the story's a good pay, pay so like like that. They're setting up the mega conflict, you know, with Kirk and all these different people. Oh, okay, here, here's my theory about Mr. Futon. And by the way, the fact that they name him after a piece of furniture, I find humorous, but a little distracting. Just a little distracting to me. I think he's, I think he's an okay character, but I think he's more than just filler. And this could be okay. So this is my theory. I could be totally wrong. And by the way, I'm going to throw up a spoiler alert just in case I'm right. All right, go ahead. Okay. And you've read this stuff, so you probably know, but you may not want to say. So I'm just going to throw this out there, and we'll just see if I'm right or I'm totally off. And I could be totally off, but I'm saying that he's on there, uh, Mr. Futon. The kind of likable, goony kind of security guy who's very uh, self-conscious and very um, conscientious and that kind of thing. I think he's going to be the sacrificial lamb who's going to save Kirk from a future assassination attempt. And then if he does end up getting killed because of that, then it'll be like, a, oh, what a nice guy. I liked him. He was so innocent. And he gets blown away. There you go. That's what I say. I could be wrong. I think that the, I think that's what he's there for. But we'll see. Um. Okay. Okay. So we'll next take note on that <laughs> and see how wrong I am. Okay. Uh, okay, because I know what happens to him, and uh, I guess I shouldn't say. Okay. So I could be wrong. I could be right. Okay. Uh, another thing is I don't like Ambassador Palmer one bit, and that's okay because that's what he's there for. Obviously, they wrote him that way. I just well, hold on. I, I'm going to just chime in on the futon okay. thing. Okay. And this might be a spoiler. I don't ever remember seeing him again. Oh, really? Okay, there you go. <laughs> I mean, he might show up in the background, but I never remember him being another major character. Okay, so I'm wrong. Uh... Okay, so Ambassador Palmer. He's one of those characters they trot out every once in a while, kind of like the original Captain of the Excelsior, uh, Captain Styles. Oh, yeah, he was a jerk. He was a jerk. So they trot these guys out every once in a while in different like like movies and stuff that are purposely meant to be there as a jerk. You want to hate them because something's going to happen to them at the end where they're going to get their just desserts. So the only thing is I feel kind of manipulated when they trot out characters like this. Also, I'm not too crazy about a superhero outfit. Superhero uh, outfit. Superhero. His outfit looks like a superhero. He's got a cape and stuff. Well, that's I the just, style. The, the style for superheroes, not for Federation people. Lando had a cape. What point does that make? <laughs> it's a totally different franchise, which you know. <laughs> yeah, um, you're right. He does have a big, long cape. But so do a lot of these guys on this planet. I, oh, 
Okay, well, but that, but, but he, you know, obviously the ambassador has nothing to do with that planet per se. I mean, he's not right. one of those aliens. But yeah, it, it's a comic book. You know, comic books tend to have people in there with flowing capes. So, right. <laughs> uh, and at of least, course, at least the Federation bridge officers aren't wearing capes like they oh, were. Oh, thank in that God! Movie. Oh, thank God! Boy, that was dumb. I had a hard time with those two. That married couple. Oh, the Bickleys. Bickleys. That's it. The Bickleys. Oh God, I hated them. Uh, also interesting that the ambassador has green skin and yellow hair. Keeps things nice and uh, colorful. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Kind of like a surfer Hulk. A surfer Hulk. Yes, yes, exactly. He has the, he has the Hulk's uh, facial coloring. <laughs> if not the hair coloring, coloring. Well, that's where the surfer part comes in. Oh, I got gotcha. you. He dyed it, dude. Dude, a bleach blonde. <laughs> guy, hulky kind of guy. Okay, that's all I have to say. Alright, cool. Um, Number three? Just one last thing oh, about please. Sala. I, I don't know if we ever mentioned it, but I really loved how Just Kirk refuses to die. <laughs> and, and then the joke about it. Yeah. That was awesome. Where he's And then Sala's legitimately surprised. Well, yes. Why aren't you dead? Exactly. And, and even uh, Spock and the bridge crew are going... You know, maybe we want to cut off communications right about now. <laughs> you know, they're, they're they're not quite sure what's going on here, but yeah, no, I, I just really enjoyed that part, and, and especially the genuine surprise on on his face. Yeah, yeah, I I, I like how uh, how Kirk trots out his brass balls and just stands there and says, "Do your worst." Yeah, well, he's about to do that again. <laughs> right. Uh, right. You ready to jump into it? I'm ready for it. All right, so it looks like the uh, writing staff is all the same. You know, we've not mentioned the titles, or at least I didn't mention the title of the first one, which was called The Return. Mm -hmm. And this one is entitled, because I didn't write it down. Death Before Dishonor. Death Before Dishonor. Echo, echo. (laughs) Which came out uh, December 1989. So this is uh, rounding out the fourth quarter of 1989. Ah, there you go. I figured we would do these in quarters just to kind of break 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 the break it up a little bit is that we would do a quarter of Star Trek and a quarter of Next Gen and then it take us about you know four episodes per title to get through a a publishing year. Cool. So that's why we're doing three and uh to next week we'll do three Next Gen. So anyways, back to this. I digress. Uh, all the uh, artists and writers are the same. I think I already said that. And the cover shows Commander Claw or Captain Claw. I can't remember what he is. I guess he's Captain. So it shows Captain Claw and Vixus aboard the Bridge of the Bird of Prey. Claw is using his periscope to view the Enterprise. Which doesn't make sense, but looks pretty damn cool. Why there would be a periscope on board the ship. Agreed. All right, so uh, the story starts uh, aboard the Klingon Bird of Prey. Uh, behind a closed door, we hear the reciting of what might be Klingon love poetry. As the poem comes to an interesting line, which is, I grab for your heaving, the captain is interrupted by a communication from the bridge. Claw tries to ignore it, and we get the line again, before the bridge officer breaks in again and states that they have news on Kirk's location. The door swings open, and Claw and Vixus stumble out, putting on various bits of their clothing along the way. Vixus says in disgust, 
couldn't it have waited just a few more minutes? Which, again, is pretty funny. All right, so back on Cronian 3, the ambassador, uh, the Federation ambassador, Kirk, Spock, and the rest of the delegation are staring down the phasers of Kime, who is demanding that they leave or he will blast them. The ambassador tries to bring the two leaders to reason, but they eventually concede and leave Kime's headquarters. As they regroup at, um, how did you pronounce it? Takula? Sure, so, sounds good. Yeah, as they regroup at Takula's headquarters, Spock states that Takula is acting as if they are on the brink of defeat. Uh, Takula confirms this, and this uh, is just another couple of instances where basically Spock and Kirk are showing up the ambassador uh, since they have a better understanding as to what's going on than he does. Uh, he does not take too kindly to being shown up, and the ambassador dismisses the Enterprise crew and claims that their services are no longer needed. On the Enterprise, Scotty fixes the malfunctioning log recorder for Kirk by smashing it against the railing. As Spock and Kirk discuss how the Enterprise is in no real danger from the planet, Sulu talks to Chekhov about Lieutenant Kathy, and Ahura tries to have a discussion about something with Scotty. And I'm assuming this is in reference to their love interest in Star Trek V. But they, they get cut short. Uh, because suddenly the ambassador contacts Kirk, and it sounds like he's being tortured by Kime. Kirk orders an immediate beam-up, but at that same moment, Claw's bird of prey decloaks and starts a vicious attack on the Enterprise. Spock notes that the Klingon ship is using only torpedoes to save energy, and has moved all their shields forward, leaving their rear completely vulnerable. After a few direct hits by the torpedoes, in a completely brilliant move, Kirk has transporter chief. Excuse me, Kirk has transporter chief Tuchinsky beam the next photon torpedo uh, that's being shot out by the Klingon ship. So she actually beams it and then rematerializes it behind the bird of prey, which then smashes into its unprotected rear causing some massive damage, and Claw is forced to retreat. With that crisis over, Kirk orders Tajinsky to beam Ambassador Palmer up from the planet. Palmer comes up with massive damage, enough so that McCoy states that he will need some artificial parts. So I'm assuming artificial organs. Never actually states what he's going to need. Uh, Kirk meets with the upset... Tuchinsky and asks her if she would be willing to help him pay back Kime. We cut to Kime's headquarters and Kirk and the security team beam in. Uh, Kirk gives him one chance to surrender. When Kime refuses, Kirk shoots him point blank, who then dematerializes in front of everybody. All of Kime's followers relent and start to agree that peace is a good way to go. The final scene shows Kirk explaining that Kime was not really vaporized, but Tajinsky beamed him away at the exact moment to a remote part of the planet, where it's going to take him about six to month, or it's going to take him about six months to a year to return to civilization. So, I kind of bl went through that one pretty quick because it it was a very fast-paced story. I thought a lot of action. Didn't need to go into a lot of detail. Right. And a uh, and several clever moves, as always, by Kirk. 
Yeah, this was very heavy on the transporter, unique ways to use the transporter. Right. Which was kind of cool. Just you never see them do anything like this ever again. No, the whole idea of beaming incoming <laughs> weapons fire, uh, I, yeah, I don't think you could do that with a, uh, with a phaser beam, but uh, pretty cool that, uh, well, yeah, yeah it, that, it, that you could it, actually do that with a photon torpedo. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, though. Well, <sighs> then why doesn't everybody do it? Well, exactly. I mean, if you, it, it's one of those things that's like, if you think about it, it's like, well, maybe you could. But then, as you point out, why don't they do that more often? You know, first and last time they ever did it. But I must say, after all the years of watching uh, Star Trek Space Battles, there's usually a set number of ways that they get resolved. I think this is one of the more creative ways. So uh, I agree, and as a kid, I loved it, and, and I still like it now. Uh, I just, you know, I don't really see how it could work, but it's, it's, a, pretty cool, it's a pretty cool solution. It is, and they should be doing it all the time. So he didn't mention that he had to drop down the shields to do this magic maneuver, but I'm assuming they did. Oh, he must have. Oh, well, didn't they lose the front shields? Oh, did they? Um, I I knew they lost the front shields at some point, and I'm pretty sure it was just before they tried this trick. Okay, that might be right. Right, because they were, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think they did that. I thought the the idea of blowing away <laughs> Kime or making it appear as if they did, I thought was pretty good. Because this guy's obviously a jerk. Yeah, and, and and you you could if anybody deserves to be blown away, he does. So having Kirk go in there and do it uh, you know, handle this a more in a more aggressive fashion is great rather than diplomatics is great. It's just that it's another thing that's like, it's, if Kime does get back uh, in less than six months, he's going to be like a third, and is able to get back into power. He's going to be like a third guy who's going to be after Kirk's head. But Right. Yeah, my, my only beef with that is that, and maybe it's not a beef, maybe it's just, it seems like Kime and Sala both are kind of the same type of leader. In that they're basically leading on only their reputation, and as soon as something happens, I mean, like like here, as soon as he was gone, all his followers just collapsed and and gave up. Whereas in Sala, once his one little trick didn't work on Kirk, they just you know just stood there and watched him as they they flew off. Well, they tried to fire, but they missed. Why didn't they? pursue i mean did it did it explain why they didn't pursue? No. i just assumed and they didn't say one way or the other yeah, so like, so you think that sala lost his power uh, over his people i don't know I, i'm wondering i mean obviously he lost his power i mean well he he, he demonstrated that he is not all powerful in right. front of in front of whatever ship's crew was tied into that that transmission back and forth between the enterprise and them right so who knows it's possible I mean, apparently he still has the ability to kill his people. I mean, that, I, I'm pretty sure it's not psychosomatic. Right. They got, I mean, they, got, they got something going on there. Even though McCoy didn't find it, they got something going on where he's able to do that. I think it is psychosomatic. He just, wheel, he just 
they're just so afraid of him and so I... trusting that he can do it that they do it. Uh, I don't believe I don't that. Know. Yeah, I suppose that's possible. I suppose it's possible. But. Well, I mean, they didn't explain it one way or the other, so... Well, I'm pretty sure we're going to see both of these guys again, but I definitely think we're going to see Sala again. I hope so, because I would like... And I don't remember... You know, I read these back when I was, you know, 10, 10 11, 12 years old, something like that. So right. my memory on them are not, is not all that great. Oh, okay. But okay. uh, I'm assuming they come back, but I can't remember for sure. Yeah. The next issue's name is Repercussions. So one way or the other, you know the, you know the Klingon's going to be back for some, some Kirk blood. And we'll see if there's anybody else there to join in in the fun. Yeah, I like this Claw character, and I like Vixus. I think, right. I think they make a good duo. Right. The, the thing is, I see him being more formidable in this comic book than I remember him being in the movie. Well, yeah, because he gets taken out by he gets taken out off screen by by Spock or whatever, right? I mean, all I remember is that Spock suddenly is in control of the bird of prey without any real explanation, right? Yeah, I don't remember those details. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I have to watch uh, again that movie. I have not seen much at all, <laughs> so I really have to watch that one again. I did watch it not too long ago, or when I say watch, I listened to it because I wanted to listen to the director's commentary. Uh-huh. So I had it just playing while I was driving. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I know what Shatner was saying, but right. I can't really remember. You know, I wasn't watching it, so I can't remember what Claw was doing. So anyways, not that you cared what I was doing while I was uh, listening to that uh, great commentary by Shatner and his daughter. Ah, he did it with his daughter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'll have to. I'll have to grab, dig that DVD out and listen myself because at least the beginning of it. I, I. I. I just wonder exactly what that would be like. Kirk <laughs> commenting on his own movie like that. You know how much how much of an ego ride it was as opposed to, uh, you know, you know a, a regular director who really wants to talk about his work. Right. Uh, it was pretty good. I enjoyed good. it. Good. And, and it was good. good that he had someone to bounce stuff off of. I think it would have right. been a little stiff if, if it was just him talking to right. himself. Not that I don't think he could do it, but, sure. you know, I think that type of commentary needed someone else to bounce ideas off of. Exactly. It, too bad it wasn't like one of the other actors or other people that were produce, involved. Like in a, a writer or something, right? Uh, right. Oh, I guess well, who he, wrote it? He, well, I know he, he had he he had partial writing credit on that, right? Yeah, he did. Right. So who knows? Yeah. Uh, let me see. Uh, I okay. This is a minor point, but I'm going to throw it out there because I'm kind of a gun freak. I like Chekhov's covert-looking gun. So near the beginning, when Kaim it has all of his people pulling their guns on him. Uh, there's a point when uh, Chekhov pulls out a covert-looking gun, and Kirk says, "Put it away." There's, you know, uh, we're 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 not going to fire first. It's very small, and it's it's held kind of close to Chekhov's uh, body, but to me, that does not look like a normal phaser. It looks uh, much smaller. Well, that and it has an actual barrel. Well, I guess these phase their phasers they have you. barrels, right? 
Well, yeah, but it, no, well, they're normal phasers, as we saw at the end of this comic. Or anybody who out there that has the comic, there's a nice close-up of Kirk, you know, firing this particular uh, vintage of, of phaser, and and it has a has a front that's it's, you know, it's it's kind of got a barrel. I mean, it kind of looks like a, a smaller version of the combat phaser. Yeah, isn't this the heavy heavy assault hand phaser or something no, like that? Not the one Kirk uses. Mm. It's not the assault phaser. The assault phaser looks a little different. So this this one's a little bit more like their normal general issue phaser. Right. But what Chekhov seems to have, and I 100% believe, uh, agree with you, and I probably should have zoomed in a little better to see better, but it looks like it's got like a normal kind of round gun barrel like a, like a modern day gun. In fact, it looks like it may even have a little metal sight, a front sight on the barrel. Hmm. Um, so it looks quite different. I mean, matter of fact, quite frankly, it reminded me a lot of the Babylon 5, you know, little standard sidearms that they used. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting. It makes a lot of sense to have a covert weapon like that when you go into diplomatic situations that you're not 100% sure what's going on. Right. I mean, obviously Chekhov went down there in his capacity as security chief. Uh, or is he a security chief at this point? Yeah, he is. Okay, so he still is. Okay. So, and if you're going to go into a situation that's supposed to be diplomatic, yet you're still not sure enough that you bring the security chief, you know, you'd want to have a smaller weapon that isn't so obvious. Uh, but right. since they got rid of, since nobody uses Phaser 1 anymore, it was interesting to see something smaller being used. Yeah, and the Phaser 1 used to attach to the actual Phaser, the larger Phaser, right? It could, and this, yes. And this one that Kirk has at the end looks like it could have a exactly. Phaser 1 attached to the top. So they were consistent with that same design philosophy of the original Phaser. Right. So really... Um, it does look a lot... It, it, it looks like a modernized extension of the original series phaser. Right. Yeah, so I just want to know how... What's her name again? Tuchinsky. How huh. she timed that beaming exactly when he was firing. Right. She had to get her coordinates very, very right. Although and, I will... And the, the timing. Well... Well, yeah, I mean, coordinates and timing. But one thing that always kind of struck me about the photon torpedoes, they're not the fastest weapon in the world. I mean, uh, you know, the phasers, uh, well, they should shoot out at the speed of light. So you shouldn't even be able to see, like, it's streaking forward. I mean, it's it's going at 186,000 feet per second. I mean, it's light, right? So it should right. be, like, just, just on. So that's fast. But it always struck me that, that, that photon torpedoes take a little more time to, to uh, hit their target. Right, because they have to have the spindly uh, uh, light thing. Oh, right, right. The little, yeah. You never had that in the original series, but when <laughs> they had a better, uh, better special effects budget. I always liked that. That looked good. Yeah, I liked how in Voyager, the episode flashback where they, they go back to the uh, you know, Star Trek VI time frame. Uh -huh. And it shows the Excelsior shooting photon torpedoes, and it's that type of fo photon torpedo effect. I thought that was really cool because, you know, watching Voyager in the next gen, you kind of miss, you know, the, the, the movies did have a different style on their weapons. So oh, was, so they, was, went, they went retro? So it looked like the old TV series? or, or it, it, went, it looked like it does in the movies, which oh, okay. doesn't quite match what is in the next gen. 
Oh, right, exactly, because they're, like, more advanced or whatever. Right. But I went ahead and, when I had made my comment about Captain Styles, Right. Um, I didn't remember his name. So I had to go back and, you know, do a little bit of searching around. And so I looked up the Excelsior, and at least the site I went to had said that the Excelsior has quantum torpedoes in addition to uh, photon torpedoes. And it has transwarp. Well, yes, which supposedly never worked right, but I don't know. Or at least when they first introduced it. That's right, that's right. Um, Maybe they worked the bugs out later. Interesting that it has quantum torpedoes, because I thought quantum torpedoes is something that Next Gen introduced over time. Yeah, I thought that the first time I heard quantum torpedoes was like uh, Deep Space Nine with the Defiant. I thought that was the first time. Maybe that was the first time. Right, but but certainly in a time frame much later, what boy we're geeking out here, than the Excelsior would be in. <laughs> Agreed. So that was kind of interesting, but yeah. it's just a website that said it. I don't know if it was official or not. Yeah, well, was it our website? It was not our website. Oh, because I could say that. <laughs> you could yes, we could say anything we want to. <laughs> All right, what else you got on this one? Um, oh, by the way, I was talking it, about I was talking about when Kirk shoots the phaser, right? And Trunansky has to beam up uh, Kime, right? So I mean, yeah, you, like you said, that phaser should be going at the speed of light, and she was right. able to use the transporter effect to look like he, yep. was disintegrated instead of beamed. Exactly. That that's what I meant. I don't know if I, that came across clear. Yeah, and. At least they showed, uh, at, you know, after the phaser fired and, and Kime was gone, they showed kind of like a a, a spindly uh, bill, little bit of smoke uh, coming up from the ground, kind of like that was just the the final remnants of Kime just floating up into the uh, air. Right. Which, unless Tachinsky was able to beam that in place of him, you know, he didn't actually burn up, so... There shouldn't be any smoldering remains of uh, of Kime, but right. I agree. Uh, I'm just wondering: is it springtime on the Enterprise? Sulu and Kathy, perhaps Scotty and Uhura. So I'll tell you, Peter David was in a romantic mood. Yep. Yeah, I'm curious to see what goes on with this Kathy person. Yes. A- yes. And maybe Kirk and Terinsky. Oh. Hmm. Well, I don't know. She's a woman, and he hasn't had his way with her. I'm assuming he'll get around <laughs> there sooner or later. Even though by this time period he was an old fat man, that didn't stop him. He got the uh, <laughs> he got the girl in Star Trek Four, and uh, yeah, but he was, you know, I, I think I think he passed a point during five, and definitely when six came up, where he was uh, he was pretty <laughs> thick. Where it would just look oogie if he was kissing on some <laughs> 20-year-old girl. <laughs> oogie, exactly. It would be oogie. Huh. Uh, yeah, I never, I never thought about that. I guess they did stop doing the love interest in Star Trek V. Oh, they should. Anyway. Huh. I mean, you get to a certain point, come on. See, I always think of the novels that come after Star Trek Generations where, you know, he gets married and has a kid and all this all stuff. Right. Yeah, and... Oh... That's fine if the woman's older. She wasn't. She was super young. Oh, man. She was a hot, you know, Romulan, Vulcan, a Romulan? human, Klingon hybrid. 
Oh my god. And 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 he keeps saying how hot she is. Ah. <laughs> you cradle robber. Huh. <laughs> All right. Right. We, we, we're digressing a little bit. We're very digressing. We've used a plenty of our vast audience's time. All right, anything else? Nothing. Okay, well then, do you mind if I do the elsewheres? Please do. Uh, I'll do it this week, and then next week we won't have to do it, because this would already be covered. So, uh, like I said, uh, these came out October, November, and December of 89. The Star Trek V movie had just come out in June, Star Trek The Next Generation Season 3 was in full swing these three months. I guess it was about to end Season 3. Or no, no, it wasn't. It, they had their mid-season cliffhanger thing. I don't think it was a cliffhanger, but it was Season 3. <laughs> I can All hang right. my head on that. <laughs> All right, so in September, uh, we had a Star Trek The Next Generation novel called Captain's Honor by David... And Daniel Dvorkin, and in that one, Picard goes toe-to-toe with a captain of the USS Centurion on how to handle the MDOC Empire. So basically, we get two different management styles, one one maybe a little harsher than Picard's normal, uh, easy-going manner. Mm-hmm. All right, so in all, manner. Yeah, well, I always thought Picard was kind of a... A hard ass. So, uh, to have someone that even worse than he is, or you—you you thought Picard was a hard ass? Well, he was definitely by the book. Everything had to be by the book. Yeah, well, especially in the early days, right? When he's chasing Wesley off the bridge. Yeah, which we'll we'll get that next week. Ah. All right. So in October, there was a, an original series novel called "The Cry of the Onlys" by Judy Class which we've talked about this before. This is the sequel to the episode Miri. Mm-hmm. Also that month was the original series novel called The Lost Years by J.M. Dillard. This is a really good book. It kind of ties in what happened after Star Trek, the TV series, but before Star Trek, the motion picture. So it has Decker in command of the Enterprise and Kirk overseeing the refit as Admiral. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty good. Basically, they're... Klingons create a ultimate weapon, kind of by accident. Mm. It's it's pretty good. November, the next generation novel called "The Call of to the Darkness" by Michael Jan Friedman, and in this one, Picard and an away team vanish, and Riker must face the Enterprise being ravaged by a virus. And this one, I think, might be one of the only two novel covers that I know of that has Pulaski on the cover. So I only know of one other one that that she got uh, cover uh, coverage. Is that the right word? <laughs> cover sure. coverage works fine. All right, and then in December was a, an original series novel called "The Kobayashi Maru" by Julie Eckler, and this is basically the the crew of the Enterprise are stuck in a uh, shuttle pod, and they each go one by one to recount how they took the Kobayashi Maru. And the interesting thing about that is that Kirk beats it by programming the attacking Klingons to recognize his name and to be so impressed that they let him pass. (laughs) (laughs) Which this origin of how Kirk beat the Kobayashi Maru, how he cheated, was pretty much the origin or the correct 
continuity. I mean, it was even backed up by a DC Comics issue uh, many years later, where it pretty much played out the same way. Uh, so, I mean, that was that was how he cheated all the way up until the 2009 movie, which we got a slightly different explanation. But anyways, I, li- I like how that kept in continuity with the comics and the novel and everything. Right. So, that's it. So, next week we're going to do Star Trek The Next Generation, cool. issue number one, two, and three. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Getting back into Picard and the boys. Yeah. Hi, and, it's, and gals. It's quite good. Michael Jan Friedman. Excellent. All right. So until next week, take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.